Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. I am Greg Sesek, uh, Adult Program Coordinator. Uh, Betty Metzger uh, is here tonight, and we're very glad. Uh, this is a program which is part of our Writers Live author series. Um, if you don't receive our library newsletter, Compass, there are copies on the table in the back. Uh, if you would like to have it mailed or emailed to you, uh, sign up back there. It comes out. Um, this is the May-June edition, and next will be July. June, May-June, July and August is on the way. So. Betty Metzger's journalism career began in 1964 at the Tribune Democrat in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Prior to working at the Washington Post in 1970, she was a reporter at the Evening Bulletin in Philadelphia. As a newspaper reporter, she wrote about racial issues, criminal justice, and religion. As head of the journalism education program at San Francisco State University, she founded the University Center for Integration and Improvement of Journalism. A, re a former member of the board of the Center for Investigative Reporting, she is a founding member of Investigative Reporters and Editors, IRE. Betty Metzger's photographs, including ones from her book, Women at Work, have been exhibited throughout the world. Betty Metzger is also the author of Framed, The New Right Attack, on Chief Justice Rosebird and the Courts, an investigation of attacks on the California Supreme Court from inside and outside the court in the late 1970s, and Winds of Change, Challenges Confronting Journalism Education, the first national study of journalism education. Please welcome Betty Metzger. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. I find it, is this okay? I am especially happy to be here in Baltimore, which I consider to be the home, or the heart at least to some extent, of the Catholic peace movement, which was so essential uh, to the media burglars, an essential inspiration to them and indeed their home. Uh, in the year or two immediately prior to the media burglary. Um, I may be one of the only journalists that you'll, you'll meet who took 40 years to finally complete a story. <laughs> I started working on this story when the burglars unknown to me uh, sent me the files that they had stolen from the media office in 1971. And now, in 2014, uh, I have the privilege of reporting who they are and the enormous impact of what they did. The story really begins with Bill Davidon. And Bill Davidon, um, I describe him as mild-mannered history professor. Um, it was his idea, the burglary was his idea, and um, it was possible for him to even think of the idea of burglary because he had been part of the Catholic peace movement uh, in, the, in the previous year and learned about the concept of burglary, which was quite a shock to him at first. Uh, he learned about the concept of burglary as an act of resistance from them because of what was happening with the burglaries of draft board offices. But... Um, 
It was events, other events that took place in late 1969 and throughout 1970 that led to him thinking of, of burglary. That was an incredible time, and of course we could say that about the years right before that too. But there was a series of particularly striking events uh, that drove Bill to look for something that would bring more of a sense of hope to what he feared uh, was a peace movement that just felt a deep sense of hopelessness because of the failure to stop the war. Um, you recall that uh, those of us who were old enough to remember this, um, that in late 1969 was in when the world discovered what had happened at Milai in 1968, the massacre of 504 women, children, and elderly Vietnamese people at a Vietnamese hamlet uh, named Milai. And it would, that increased the depth of hopelessness that people felt. And then after that, there seemed to be a succession of, of, of events and, and pronouncements that increased that, that sense. Um, in, in March, uh, Ronald Reagan said, as governor of, of California, uh, if, it takes, if a bloodbath is what it takes to get rid of the dissenters, then let's get it started. Um, it's, I must admit that when I did my research for, for the book and I went back to a period that I had lived through and reported on, it was, it was surprising to me the amazing things that I had forgotten, um, the extreme nature of some things that, that took place. It was also in 1970 that the end of April, April 30th, that Richard Nixon announced one evening, that evening, that we were invading Cambodia. And that was following up on the fact that we had already been secretly bombing Cambodia for several months. And the reaction of Americans the next day, May 1st, a Friday, was extremely strong. There were uh, demonstrations in small towns uh, and small university ca college campuses where there had never been demonstrations before. Many more people were now touched by the sense of hopelessness and also anger, of course. And then following on the heels of that, just the following Monday, the four students were killed at Kent State. And that was the first time that people protest, Americans protesting the war had been killed on the homeland. And then two students were killed at Kent St at, um, Jackson State a short time later. And on the Friday after the shootings at, at Kent State, there was a vigil endorsed by the mayor of New York, John Lindsay. There was a, a vigil that took place uh, on downtown New York in the, in the financial district. And while hundreds of students were conducting this silent vigil at noon, uh, construction workers on their lunch hour, most of them uh, workers at the building of, of the World uh, Trade Center, came uh, as a running rampage through these students who were conducting the vigil and started beating them with large tools that were wrapped in American flags. And dozens of students were seriously wounded and had to be treated. 
And this also stood out as sort of an example of the, the, the tense divisions, the t intense pain that existed in the country at that time. And Bill Davida, I should also add as a footnote to what happened in New York that day, um, within, I think it was two weeks later, the president and vice president welcomed the 20-some of the construction workers who had beaten the students in New York that day and honored them for showing their patriotism that day. And the labor leader, uh, Peter Brennan, who had led the demonstration, uh, was then engaged, uh, he was a Democrat, uh, was then engaged to lead uh, Democrats for Nixon and was named labor secretary in the new Nixon administration. At the same time that Bill Davidon was experiencing that and everybody else was too, and it was having a big impact on people in the peace movement, he also started hearing from every... Uh, organization, every peace organization in, in Philadelphia that he was part of, he kept hearing the same rumor, that we feel that we're being invaded by spies, that we, they've infiltrated us and they're marching beside us, they're in our offices, and it's having a poisonous impact on the peace movement. And being a scientific type, uh, and also somebody not prone to believing in conspiracies, he rejected this idea. And he thought that people were just so disappointed in the fact that the war continued that it was easy for them to, to think that, that, that this might be happening. But he kept hearing it, and he kept hearing it from very reasonable people he had known for a long time and been engaged with for a long time. And finally, by the end of that fall of 1970, he believed it was true. And once he believed it was true, being the type of person he was, he believed this is a problem that must be solved. Now, most of us, if we became convinced that the largest law enforcement agency and intelligent, domestic intelligence agency in the country was spying throughout the country on domestic, act, domestic activists, um, we might think that is such a huge problem. Uh, it's really too bad about that. But Bill's response was that this is a problem. Because it's so big, it absolutely must be solved. He put his mind to how it could be solved, and he understood that Hoover was not beholden. He, Hoover did not really report to anyone. That attorney generals, who were his boss, throughout the years, didn't really regard him as a person that, that, that they were to uh, instruct or, or question, nor did Congress, nor did presidents. There literally was no oversight. Of course, this was not a subject that people thought very much in those days about, thought about very much. Oversight of intelligence, intelligence agencies pretty much did what they wanted to do, and no one asked questions about them. He decided that it was the kind of problem that had to be solved by providing evidence. Yes, there were a lot of activists, especially old-time activists, who would say, of course they're spying. We've always known that. And he thought, no, this is a problem, and people need to know about it. Something must be done about it. And the only way that we can do something is if we have evidence. And if we get evidence, 
the American people will believe it and they'll demand that something be done. Now that was quite a jump uh, in reasoning to think that because at that time J. Edgar Hoover was idolized in this country by most people, not the activists who had him, uh, who, who were suspicious of him, but by most people in the country he was idolized and that was no accident because since the 1930s he had had an enormous public relations operation in force that had been quite successful. Countless movies made in Hollywood. Each script he required that he uh, not only sign off on it, but that he read it completely and, and often edit them. There also was a weekly Sunday night series on an ABC called The FBI, uh, which painted him as her and the Bureau as heroic. Countless books that had been ghostwritten, thousands of articles. So people adored this person whose offices he wanted to get evidence from. But finally he concluded that the only way that you could get evidence would be if a group of people were willing to risk their freedom, probably for a very long period of time, and burglarize an FBI office. A very audacious idea and something that most people would have thought, I'm sure, is an absolutely crazy idea. Wouldn't an FBI office have the greatest security that you could imagine? But Bill set out to find whether other people would agree with him that this was a serious problem, it needed to be solved, and that they were willing to risk their freedom. He asked nine people. One person, a philosophy professor, said no, and all the rest said yes, that they were willing to risk their freedom to burglarize an FBI office. I should point out that one of those nine people um, abandoned the group just days before the burglary took place, knowing absolutely everything that they planned to do. And nevertheless, they decided to go ahead. Let me just introduce you to um, each of the, of, the, of the eight people. I should say seven, because one of them, neither the burglars uh, nor I could find. Um, first, a little bit more about Bill Davidon. Um, the roots of his commitment to, to peace and, and uh, to resistance really started uh, the day that Hiroshima uh, was, was bombed, Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. He was a physicist, and he understood what was involved, and he had deep fears that this was the beginning of something much, much worse. And beginning then, he became an activist against the use and the development of nuclear weapons. So it was then natural that at the beginning of the Vietnam War, he was opposed to the war and became involved immediately. Throughout the war, the potential use of nuclear weapons was always on the table. The other people included... John and Bonnie Rains. John and Bonnie Rains were a married couple at the time. He was a religion professor, comparative religion, at Temple University, uh, where he continues to teach, having just recently retired and still teaching part-time. And Bonnie was a daycare uh, center director. And they had three children under the age of eight at that time. And they were shocked, as each of the people that Bill asked this question of, what do you think of burglarizing an FBI office? They were shocked, but 
as they thought about it. Um, something kicked in from a decision that they had made early in their marriage, which was that they hoped that, I should explain that, that John had a background throughout the 60s of going south, beginning with being a freedom writer. Uh, and then he went south most summers during the That's an announcement telling people the library is closing, but we're not supposed to pay attention to it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thank you. They had decided early in their marriage that they hoped that if the occasion ever arose, that they had an opportunity to engage in an act of resistance that they thought might contribute significantly to overturning some kind of significant injustice, that they would have the courage to say yes and to do that together. And as they contemplated Bill Davidon's question about burglarizing an FBI office, they thought this probably or this could be such an occasion. Actually, they still, by the time they said yes, they still thought it was unlikely to be possible. Another of the burglars was uh, Keith Forsyth. Keith Forsyth was uh, 20 at the time. And he, um, like another of the burglars, Bob Williamson, had dropped out of college the previous year, again, out of this you know, deep concern about the war continuing. And like a, a, a certain portion of, of college protesters at that time decided that they would take a, a break and spend almost full time working to stop the war. And... Bob had come for, came, came to Philadelphia from a small town in New Jersey and uh, Keith from a small town in Ohio. Keith turned out to have special talents that were very helpful for this occasion. Um, he uh, knew something about locks. And so after the group made their decision in December of 1970 that they were going to move ahead, um, Keith took a correspondence course in locksmithing. <laughs> And uh, he also walked by the media FBI office door, and he was shocked. It was a, uh, a, a common kind of, of lock, and he went and bought two such identical locks at a hardware store, one to put on a door in the Reigns' third-floor attic so he could practice and get up his speed for lockpicking at night, and the other extra he, to tear apart, so he could figure out what kinds of tools he could build in order to pick the lock. Um, these people were fairly smart, as you can tell. Um, Bob Williamson um, had changed quite a bit in the, in the last uh, couple years. Uh, as a high school student in uh, Runnymede, New Jersey, he had won uh, local and statewide American Legion speeches, in which he gave what the American Legion, and he regarded as a very clever speech where he would walk out onto the stage in sort of large strides and sniffing and say, I smell smoke, the smoke of draft cards burning. And this endeared him considerably to the American Legion, and certainly they would have been aghast at what he was thinking in 1970-71. And two of the other Two other burglars 
for personal, different personal reasons, have chosen not to be named in, in the book, and I have named them Ron Durst and, and Susan Smith. And Susan Smith was also a college professor in the Philadelphia area, and um, she too had a background in the civil rights movement. Each one of these people found the, the roots of the, and, and their motivation uh, to come from um, the the civil rights movement and also from their from the from the Holocaust. For the youngest members of, of the group, the Vietnam War itself was their chief inspiration and and motivation. Um, Susan Smith had a particularly upsetting experience uh, after the burglary where the FBI uh, came to her office just two days later and they wanted to interview her and uh, she refused to be interviewed. They said they would return. Um, They didn't, but she um, immediately after the burglary had a recurring uh, problem that continued for several years and their visit of course uh, deepened this fear that she had what happened was that she she had the concern that she thought she had removed her glove inside the FBI office she was one of the four people who actually went in and took the document and she thought she had removed her glove and then she would walk herself through every step she took as she went in and she would try to remember, did I, did I not? And she would be at the point of convincing herself, no, I never took it off. And then that confidence would be shattered. And she would think, no, I did take it off. And so she, she kept living with that fear. And it was so great that it didn't occur to her that if, in fact, there had been any fingerprints, that, uh, that she could have been arrested probably fairly early because they would have been found fairly early. In fact, no evidence, no fingerprints, no evidence of any kind was ever found during an intense five-year investigation of the burglars. Uh, Ron Durst was um, somebody who was a graduate student at the time, and he was working toward becoming um, a healthcare professional. And he grew up uh, in a, a family where his, his parents were Holocaust survivors, and around the dinner table, many nights, he heard the stories of the family members that he never met because they were killed in the Holocaust. And so he naturally adopted the idea of never again um, very early in, in his life. And as he was in his early 20s and moved to Philadelphia from New York and became part of the peace movement, he also applied that very strong conviction about never again, not just in regard to would there an- another Holocaust of Jewish people, but never again in Cambodia, never again in Vietnam. Now, these burglars were very unlike the Watergate burglars. The Watergate burglars, you may recall, were highly trained in the arts of burglary. They were all former FBI agents, former CIA agents, who had committed many burglars on behalf of the CIA and the FBI. However, they left fingerprints behind, they uh, left various kinds of evidence behind, and were rather quickly caught. Um, These burglars also were unlike Edward Snowden of the NSA 
And Edward Snowden purposely collected specific types of information, specific intelligence that he thought the public should have. These burglars broke into a building having no idea whether they would find a single piece of information of value, but doing it in the hope that they would provide the evidence that they thought must be there and evidence that would make a difference. On the night of the burglary, things didn't go quite as they had planned, despite all their careful casing for a few months including inside casing by Bonnie Rains in disguise. The plan was that all of the burglars would stay at a motel that was their staging area, about two miles from Media, and Keith, the locksmith, would go drive alone to Media and break in, pull the door shut, and then the four inside crew would come later and go in the door. When he arrived, he had a shock. There were two locks on the door, and one of them, the second one, he had never seen before, and he had walked by the door just a few days earlier on a second dry run. And Bonnie, when she did casing of the FBI office, on his instructions had looked carefully, and there was only one lock. So this was quite a shock. He couldn't, for one thing, it was a much more complicated lock, and he couldn't use his lock-picking skills to break in. He freaked out, by his words, and um, as I think anyone would have, and uh, left the building. I should describe the building. It was not exactly an office building. It was a four-story building across from a courthouse where there stood a guard 24 hours a day. It was a four-story building where in the basement and the first two floors were small offices. And on that second floor, the FBI office was located along with other offices, including a draft board. And then on the two floors above, all of these floors, off a central open uh, staircase, on the two floors on the top were residences where people came and went at any time. Front door, well lit, inside and outside. So Keith cannot break in in the 30 seconds flat, can't break in at all. So he leaves, he goes to a payphone, calls Bill at the motel and says, I think we have to call it off. Bill's come back. And for a few very intense minutes, they say not more than 15, um, they considered what in the world they should do. And after Keith describes the problem, questions are asked, Bill Davidon says very calmly, okay, let's consider all of this. Do we really have a reason to think they know about us? If you'd asked me that at that point, I think I would have said yes. (laughs) They didn't act like I would have acted. (laughs) And he says, we have to make a decision, and we have to make it very soon. And Bonnie Rains remembers that there was silence, a tense silence, and then all of a sudden, heads started to nod. Soon everyone was nodding affirmatively. And it was time for Keith to go back alone. At this time, in addition to carrying his small box of uh, homemade uh, tools, he also carried a crowbar. (laughs) 
He goes back, and even he needed even more than a crowbar eventually, and had to go back out to his car and get a jack, which he connected to the crowbar. At any rate, he did manage to break in and went back and gave the word, and at that point, four the burglars went to the office and broke in in the dark, carried four very large suitcases, and in the darkened offices, just simply unloaded all the files in the entire five-room office. And I've always enjoyed uh, FBI, current FBI agent's reaction to this. Uh, one told me that he thought, and, and every FBI agent he had ever talked to about this, just assumed that it had to have been an inside job because no one could possibly, except an agent, could have known where to look for the important files. And I always like to point out that there, later in my book, there was a solution to that. You just take everything, <laughs> and then you decide later. <laughs> and they also they had to be very careful about the leak because of that guard across the street. But they walked out the door, each of them carrying two big suitcases full uh, to waiting cars that had arrived by that time, the guard at the courthouse watching everything they did and insisting when interviewed by the FBI later that he didn't see a thing. And that may have been because what they hoped would happen may have happened. They had chosen the night of March 8, 1971, as the night for the burglary because that was the night of the first Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, heavy, world heavyweight champion fight. And their theory was, and this is probably true, that the, literally the whole world was watching and, and listening to that fight. Uh, the rights to it had been sold to just about every government in the world, it seemed. And even troops in, in Vietnam uh, where Ali had refused to go, uh, were listening to it um, after the Defense Department conducted a large fight to make sure that would happen. But the burglars thought that um, every no FBI office would think of coming to the office that night, that they surely would be listening to, to the fight, uh, although actually they had never seen an FBI office uh, an FBI agent work after 5 o'clock any night that they did casing. <laughs> But they didn't want to take any chances on that. Um, and they also thought that because of the fight that uh, no uh, media police officer uh, would uh, be uh, any place except listening to the fight and that they might not even make their regular rounds that night. But perhaps most importantly, they hoped that all those people who lived in the apartments on the third and fourth floors would have their televisions or radios on, and also the manager of the building whose apartment was right below the office would be listening to the fight. And indeed, as Keith was on the floor, stretched out, uh, pushing that door, which had a very large, uh, a, a different door, which had a very large file cabinet behind it, uh, he remembered, he heard the sounds of the fight, and it provided a great sense of relief because at certain times he had to make rather large popping noises as the door was breaking open. Um, the, they 
went to a farm about 30 miles away that night with their files, and there, a fellowship farm, a Quaker uh, campground, uh, they stayed for about 10 days, sorting through their files and choosing, separating them in various categories, and then finally the day came when they were ready to send them out. They had them organized in packets, and they would be sending them out beginning then over a period of the next two months. And on that day, um, they made two vows to each other, that they would take the secret of the burglary to their graves. And then they also vowed that they would not associate with each other uh, for fear that uh, if one of them was uh, contacted by the FBI or arrested, that and, and associated with somebody else, that the rest of one would lead to the rest of, of another. And they kept those vials. Um, they started mailing them that day, and they mailed them to fo- the first set to five people, two members of Congress, uh, Senator uh, George McGovern, and, and Representative Perrin Mitchell, um, this is the only place where I'll mention his name where we'll have strong recognition. Um, and both of them uh, ma- made a public statement that they thought that the burglary was terrible and that they had returned the files to the FBI. And um, I didn't know uh, until uh, I read the 34,000-page the investigation of the burglary, the FBI's investigation of the burglary as part of my research, um, who the other recipients were. Uh, In addition to myself, they were addressed to uh, Jack Nelson at the Los Angeles Times, Washington Bureau, and Tom Wicker at at the New York Times. Um, And then I I learned that Jack never received, didn't even know that it had been sent to him that someone in the front office of uh, the LA Times had intercepted it and delivered it to the FBI immediately. And then still later I learned that at that time that Hoover was conducting an intense campaign to get Jack fired because Jack was the only person in the country, the only journalist in the country who had done any investigative work that raised critical questions about Hoover or or the FBI. And this infuriated Hoover, and he wanted it stopped immediately. And that gives you a, uh, an indication of how, how important it was that there was literally no oversight, either official oversight or journalistic oversight. Journalists simply did not write about intelligence agencies prior to this time. Um, and at the New York Times, uh, they also handed them over to the FBI immediately and then they, they waited until after our story ran, and then they did start running stories. Uh, when I received them at the, at the Washington Post, um, uh, uh, it was a great surprise. Um, I certainly never expected to receive stolen FBI documents, and <laughs> nobody ever had. <laughs> um, and I took them to my office, And um, there was a cover letter from the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. And that's what the group called themselves. And they considered themselves to be 
to have the same responsibility that they would have had if a president or a congressional committee had done what they thought a president or congressional committee should have long ago done. They thought it was now their obligation to read these files and see if there was anything significant to report to the public about the FBI. Um, and the first file that caught my attention was a file that became emblematic of the burglary. It was a file that instructed agents to behave in such a way that they would enhance paranoia. That's a quote. And make people feel there was an FBI agent behind every mailbox. Now that seemed rather extreme and almost so extreme that it felt like it might be a hoax. And so I thought that I should continue reading before I came to any conclusion about that. But I'd been a Philadelphia reporter prior to 1970, and pretty soon in the files I was seeing names that were quite familiar to me, so I thought that probably is, is not a hoax. Uh, and I think that the, in that first set of files, the most important thing, most important file, aside from that one that was a statement of policy, was the uh, depth of what the FBI was doing with African Americans. There were individual uh, th files about individual American, African Americans who were being spied on. There was a lot of information about black students. Black students were regarded as a danger to national security by Hoover. Every black student at Swarthmore College was under surveillance and in the files of the FBI at that time. And then in a, in a much larger uh, picture of, of the, what the FBI did to the black community, there was a file that described the blanket surveillance of the black community in Philadelphia. And, but this also was a program that existed all over the country. And when you read it, you, you have this sense that it can't be true because for every, every, at that time, we were in the Cold War, and people, many people are very much aware of the dreaded Stasi and the way people in East Germany felt at that time, that they never knew who, their neighbor, even their relative, uh, their employer, anybody might be informing on them. And it was true. Well, that's... What was said about the informing on the black community was very much like that. The documents spelled out where black people should come under surveillance. And it was any place that any person might go in their daily lives. The store down the street, the bar, the restaurant, high school classrooms, college classrooms, libraries, churches, just anywhere that, that you might go also prescribed who should be hired as informers, virtually anybody that had business going into a black community as well as black people themselves who lived there. And one file that spoke to this ma massive surveillance very clearly was one that instructed, and again, this is national, instructed every FBI agent at that time to hire an informer who would report to them on an ongoing basis on the activities of black people. Just generally, we're not talking about criminal behavior. We're talking about all kinds of behavior. 
and there was an exception to that, and that was Washington, D.C., where every FBI agent was instructed to hire six informers who would report to them regularly on the activities of black people. Now, I've been going on much too long, so I'm going to just jump to a couple things and then invite you to ask questions. One thing that was, re that was revealed as a result of the media files, but not until later, was a very important program called COINTELPRO, probably something that many of you are familiar with. People had no idea uh, even people who suspected the FBI was out to su suppress dissent, as Davidon had thought, had no idea that the FBI was engaged in incredibly uh, mean and cruel, dirty tricks operations, including ones that were even murderous. So there was one, the ironically, the media file that ended up perhaps being most important was um, a mere routing slip. It was a cover sheet of uh, a story that was about, it was in, from Barron's magazine, and it was a, a story advising college presidents on how they should bring protests under control on their, on their campuses. And that routing slip had COINTELPRO across the top of it in very large letters. And at the bottom of it was um, instructions to um, agents in, in offices to get copies of this article to college administrators. And it said that, um, give it directly, give it personally to administrators who are friendly to the FBI. And to administrators who are not friendly to the FBI, write a fictitious letter and mail it to them. So it was more than a year later that Carl Stern, then an NBC reporter who covered the Justice Department and therefore the FBI, um, was in the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee office, and uh, somebody handed him a couple media files, including this one, and uh, he had never seen any of the media files, and he looked at that, and he said... Uh, that's so strange. What in the world? Why would an FBI agent be told to do, do that? And what is COINTELPRO? And that began an effort uh, that involved everybody saying no to him repeatedly in the FBI and the Justice Department. No, he could not receive what he was asking for, which were the founding papers, which would just have Hoover's description of what COINTELPRO was. But finally, in December 1973, after he had sued under the Freedom of Information Act and became the first journalist to ever get files from the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, he got the founding papers that, in Hoover's language, described that these were uh, highly secret operations carried, to be carried out throughout the country and that they were to disrupt and distort the in individuals and organizations in, from various movements. And in the end, it covered every movement that you can imagine that came into existence of people seeking basic rights, uh, women's movement, every type of black organization. And as um, FBI historian Ethan Theo Harris said, when this came out, 
uh, when COINTELPRO emerged, the American public really couldn't stand it. They really demanded that uh, something be done, that the FBI be investigated. And that happened. Um, and there actually was a spirit of reform about intelligence for the first time in the, in the mid-70s. And this happened after, after Watergate had ended, after Hoover had died and Nixon had, had left office. And the tipping point was a story in the New York Times in December 1974 about the fact that the CIA, uh, despite denying in the past that it had do did domestic do uh, surveillance uh, as a in violation of its charter, was in fact conducting, had been for years, conducting massive domestic intelligence operations. Within a month of that, um, both houses of Congress uh, determined that they would conduct investigations of all intelligence agencies. One really mattered, and that was a Senate committee called the Church Committee, named after Frank Church, the senator who was the chair of it. And then the public had a chance for the first time to hear the testimony of intelligence officials, uh, some of whom stated quite openly and seemingly at, with ease that, that no, uh, ethics, morality, or legality uh, was of no concern in their operations. And in, as a result of those hearings, uh, we also learned about the sort of the unimaginable things that happened, including what many of you probably know about Martin Luther King, and actually the Martin Luther King, the things that were conducted against Martin Luther King had gone on for years, but the one that stands out in most people's minds, I think, is the fact that there was a campaign at one point to try to get him to commit suicide. And there also were specific programs that resulted in the murder of Black Panthers with by either by informers or information that informers provided to shooters who did the killing. Reform, some reforms did take place. There were um, permanent oversight committees, uh, intelligence oversight committees created for the first time. And probably the most important change, the most uh, far-reaching change, was a change in the Freedom of Information Act that made it easier for people to get files. It's still sometimes an endurance act, but it became easier. And it was that change as a result of, of of the reforms that flowed from the media burglary that made it possible for scholars and journalists to start writing the history of the FBI in many, many books and articles that are still emerging to this day, a history that for the first time could be based on actual files rather than Hoover's interpretation of things. I would just like to close with four quotations um, that, that I think sort of summarize the, the story of the, of the burglars and what they accomplished. Um, the first is from William Sullivan, and this is from testimony that he gave at the church committee. He was the number three person in the FBI for a long time and was the head of the FBI's domestic intelligence division and also was the brains behind the scheme to try to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide. And a few years later, when he's testifying, he says this, Never once 
did I hear anybody, including myself, raise the question, is this course of action which we have agreed on lawful? Is it legal? Is it ethical or moral? We never gave any thought to this line of reasoning because we were just naturally pragmatic. The one thing we were concerned about, will this course of action work? Will it get us what we want, the objective we desire to reach? And the next quotation is from the um, first FBI director after Hoover, not the acting director in between, but Clarence Kelly. And Clarence Kelly came in in the midst of the investigation of the FBI. And it was um, a life you would not want. He came into a place where the old Hooverites were demanding that he keep things as they had always been and where the spirit of reform was tugging him in another direction. And at first, he was quite public about endorsing COINTELPRO and asking that that authority be continued. But finally, he made this statement. During most of my tenure as director of the FBI, I have been compelled to devote much of my time attempting to reconstruct and then to explain activities that occurred years ago. Some of those activities were clearly wrong and quite indefensible. We most certainly must never allow them to be repeated. And there's a quote from Bill Davidon and to me uh, as I was interviewing him. He said, it was a matter of keeping alive a sense of purpose and accomplishment when the forces seemed so overwhelming. Sometimes we accomplished more than we had reason to expect, as in media. It was a long shot. We didn't know if we'd find anything important. Other times, we never knew if we accomplished anything. But it gave voice and a sense of purpose and built little pockets of life that made sense at a terrible time. And then finally, a quote from Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Thank you. Thank you.